Today's Bible reading is from Ezekiel 40, 1-9, and Ezekiel 47, 1-12. It's in the inside cover of your book if you want to read along. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, on that very day the hand of the Lord was on me, and he took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, on whose south side there were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of man, look carefully and listen closely and pay attention to everything I am going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the people of Israel everything you see. I saw a wall completely surrounding the temple area. The length of the measuring rod in the man's hand was six long cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. He measured the wall. It was one measuring rod thick and one rod high. Then he went to the east gate. He climbed its steps and measured the threshold of the gate. It was run one rod deep. The alcoves for the guards were one rod long and one rod, one rod wide, and the projecting walls between the alcoves were five cubits thick. And the threshold of the gate next to the portico facing the temple was one rod deep. Then he measured the portico of the gateway. It was eight cubits deep, and its jams were two cubits deep. <coughs> The portico of the gateway faced the temple. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out to the north gate, and led me round outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was dripping from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows through the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand among, along the shore, from Engadi to Eglam. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamp and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will, will grow on the banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Do you have a vision of what our future might look like? I reckon there are two competing visions going on uh, in our society at the moment, two competing visions of the future. Uh, One of them you might call the Blade Runner vision of the future. Sort of Los Angeles, technologically advanced, but dark and gritty, sinister. Not really a place that you'd want to be. Uh, Kind of like Gotham City in Batman where life is cheap and people live in fear. Others have a sort of 
similarly depressed view of things, but a slightly different idea of what it will look like, that maybe we'll destroy our world with nuclear weapons and we'll leave only a sort of scorched and barren landscape with a handful of people just struggling to survive. Or George Orwell, in his novel 1984, he imagined a world where the government had become a totalitarian dictatorship, a sort of Soviet-style regime, controlling not only what you could do, but what you could say and think. Orwell's vision of the future was this. If you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Well, that's one vision of the future, and it's not hard to see how we could end up there, is it? Climate change, nuclear war, overpopulation, governments becoming increasingly coercive. We've got vigilantes on Facebook and Twitter, the self-appointed thought police of our age who are determined to stamp out any thought crime, to crush anyone who doesn't conform to their vision of the future. That's one vision of the future. But there's another vision of the future as well, an entirely different one. Let me play you a video from 1984, the year in the video. Uh, You've got all these people sitting there listening to Big Brother talking about the future. But Big Brother is a dictator and the people are all just a bunch of brainwashed clones. Uh, Most people today assume that Big Brother is Microsoft, but actually he's not. He represents Big Blue, IBM, dictating what personal computing will be like forever. A series of grey men in grey cubicles, typing grey text into grey computers. And only Apple can save us. Only Apple can stop 1984 from becoming 1984. Only Apple can liberate the masses from slavery to IBM and bring them into the glorious freedom of the children of jobs. And the Apple vision of the future continues. A future where technology will set us free. Where you can have a thousand songs in your pocket. Or 40 million songs on your wrist. A pristine white world where everyone lives happily under Johnny Ive. The benevolent dictator of design. Ruling from his pristine perimeter of perfection. A five billion dollar temple of technology that calls the faithful to worship. 
A building so stunning that it makes hardened tech journalists fall to their knees in awe, quietly sobbing onto their water-resistant Apple Watches (laughs) at the sheer beauty of it all. There's two very different pictures of the future. Blade Runner or Apple? Dystopia or Utopia? Which will it be? In the book of Ezekiel, Israel are experiencing a full-blown dystopia. It's around about 587 BC, uh, maybe a little later actually by this point, uh, ten years after Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had invaded Judah and captured Jerusalem and her king. He exiled the best and brightest to Babylon. So the Jewish elite are now strangers in a strange land, living by the Kibar Canal in Babylon. Don't think sort of uh, Apple-style holiday by the sea. Think Blade Runner, slum by an irrigation ditch. But it gets worse because Zedekiah, the puppet king who'd been left in charge of Jerusalem, has rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and he's been crushed. Jerusalem has fallen again and every significant building has been torn down. The walls of the city are nothing but piles of smoking rubble. And worst of all, the temple of the Lord, their pride, their joy, the symbol of God with them, has been utterly destroyed. Israel have no city, no temple, no king, no freedom, no future, and no hope. They're under God's judgment for rebelling against him, unable to change their own hearts so that they would want to follow him. Left to themselves, Israel are just totally stuffed. But from this smouldering wreck of a nation, God envisions a new future. We saw some of that last week, but now in chapters 40 to 48, we reach the climax of God's vision. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, On that very day, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of man, look carefully and listen closely. And pay attention to everything I'm going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the people of Israel everything you see. The Lord is about to unveil his vision for the future. And it's not a new corporate headquarters. It's a new temple. It's not a circle. It's a square. We're told in chapter 43 of Ezekiel that it's 500 cubits by 500 cubits. That's about 265 metres square. So sort of think northwest corner of the Reed Library to the southeast corner of the Ref. Uh, that is how big it is. Now that's a massive building. It's 50 times the size of the Tabernacle. It's 25 times the size of Solomon's Temple that had just been destroyed. It's about four times bigger, maybe five times bigger, than the Temple Herod would build 600 years later. And the man with the measuring rod takes Ezekiel all around the temple, measuring every nook and cranny. And it's massive. 
The outer walls are three metres high and three metres thick. The door jams, the little bit that goes around the edge of the door, is a metre wide. There's wood panelling all through it uh, and it's perfectly aligned with the points of the compass. Each portico leading from the gate is about the size of the ref. And throughout it there's sculptures of palm trees and cherubim, each with the face of a man and the face of a lion. Have you ever been in a truly colossal building and just felt the sort of sense of awe that is created by that space? It's kind of what cathedrals are designed to do. It's what good shopping centres are designed to do as well. To sort of lift your heart, to make you enter this kind of state of awe where you'll just walk around buying stuff, kind of dazed by the whole experience. Well, that's what the temple is designed to do. It's designed to strike you with awe. Then in chapter 43, Ezekiel, who in chapter 10 had seen the glory of the Lord depart from the old temple in judgment, sees it return to the new temple in blessing. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I'd seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Apparently there's a phenomenon called hyperculturemia, where people visiting places of great significance or beauty, like Jerusalem or Florence, or apparently Japanese people visiting Paris, It's very specific. (laughs) Experience rapid heartbeat and dizziness, fainting. They even have full-blown psychic breaks where they forget who they are and they just kind of wander around in a daze for days, forgetting who they are or what they're doing. This is kind of like that, but this is not the Uffizi Gallery or the Western Wall. It's not even the Louvre or the Eiffel Tower. Or even Johnny Ive in his pristine Apple spaceship, designed by Apple in California. No, this is the glory of Yahweh himself, filling his very own Yahweh-designed temple, designed by God in heaven. And the temple is designed not so that Israel will forget who they are, but so they'll remember. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. The temple built by Solomon was destroyed because of Israel's rebellion. They turned to idols and all sorts of evil and they were left with nothing. But now the Lord has designed a new temple a bigger temple, a better temple, a perfect temple that will make Israel ashamed of their sin and at the same time remind them of God's forgiveness. That's kind of why there's chapter after chapter in this part of Ezekiel of all these measurements about what goes where and how long it is and how wide and high and it's God geeking out about the design of his temple. 
because he is just so excited about his people being restored and renewed. About being with them. About them being forgiven. That's what temples are for. And instead of their old tribal boundaries, now Israel is going to be organised into a series of layers with each tribe occupying a layer all the way down Israel. Seven tribes to the north, five to the south, and in the middle of it all, a sacred district, 13 kilometres long and 11 kilometres wide. That district is divided in half. The northern half is for the priests who serve in the temple, and the temple goes in that segment. The southern half is for the rest of the Levites, and, the south, and south of that is another section for Jerusalem that will belong to all Israel. And on either side is land for the prince who will rule over them with justice. The whole picture is beautiful. It's it's geometric. It's kind of like Plato's description of Atlantis or the plans for the Apple campus. It's a picture of a perfect society under the Lord and under his anointed ruler. It will be the duty of the prince to provide the burnt offerings, grain offerings and drink offerings at the festivals, the new moons and the Sabbaths. At all the appointed festivals of Israel, he will provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to make atonement for the Israelites. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was trickling down the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Eglaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from that sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. After all these years in Babylon, covered in the filth of their sin, rotting by the Kibar Canal, God promises Israel a river of life flowing out of the temple from the very presence of God himself, pure and clear and deep, so deep that they'll be able to swim in it, so wide that no one can cross. 
And wherever it goes, it brings life. Even to the Dead Sea. It turns the Dead Sea into fresh water. It's a return to the Garden of Eden. But now there's not just one man and one woman in the garden. Now there's a whole city filled with God's people. And in the final verse of Ezekiel, we're told the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. That's God's plan for the future. His picture of what it will be like when he acts to cleanse and restore his people. When he comes to dwell with them forever. And the aim is not to leave us sort of wondering at all the measurements, but to leave us wondering at the God who would do this, who would take this wicked, rebellious people, wicked, rebellious people like us, and transform them and their world, giving them a new ruler and dwelling with them forever. Left to themselves, Israel's future is a kind of Blade Runner dystopia. But even the Apple vision of the future pales in comparison to this. But will it ever happen? Or is it just pie in the sky? A beautiful dream. A fantasy that will never come to pass. But actually, it's already begun. Early in the first century AD, the Lord did return to the temple. A new temple that Herod the Great had begun. A massive temple, five times the size of the one Solomon built, and so blindingly beautiful that the historian Josephus tells us that when the sun shone on it, people had to turn away because it was like looking at the sun itself. But on arriving at this temple, the Lord didn't set up residence. Instead, he made a whip and he drove out the money changers and the animals that were being sold there. And when the Jewish leaders demanded, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to destroy it and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. Sometime later again at the temple... On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The Lord did return to the temple to show us the true temple that the vision in Ezekiel points towards. The temple that is Jesus' body, the place where God dwells in all his fullness. Jesus is both the temple that was destroyed, struck down by the enemies of God, under God's curse for the sin of his people. And at the same time, he's the new temple, miraculously raised up by God. He's the prince who provides the offerings, the sin offering for his people, the sin offering of himself who is now filled with the spirit of God and he pours it out on his people, on all who believe, cleansing them, transforming them, bringing them to life, bringing to life the wasteland of our hearts, 
the first fruits of the harvest to come, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And yet Ezekiel's vision only hints at that inheritance. Yet about 600 years after Ezekiel, God gave another vision, this time to John, exiled not in Babylon, but on the island of Patmos. And it's a vision like Ezekiel's, but it's kind of got all the brightness turned right up. Instead of being just 2D, it's three-dimensional. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last, uh, seven last plagues came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall and 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. That's over 70 metres thick just for the wall. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night, They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What's your vision of the future? Do you fear a sort of Blade Runner-style dystopia? Or are you hoping for that Apple utopia? By the way, the problem with utopias is that they don't exist. That's what utopia means. No place. We can't make it. We'll always stuff it up. That was the point of it. That's why Thomas More wrote the book Utopia. It doesn't exist. But the Lord is preparing a place for those who love him. 
a place that Ezekiel and John only hint at, a place where we will live in the very presence of the Father and the Son, with the Holy Spirit himself flowing out from them to give life to everyone and everything. A whole new creation where we will bathe together in the river of the water of life, eat from the tree of life and bask forever in the glory of the Lord God himself. C.S. Lewis once wrote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition and iPhones, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Ezekiel calls on us to be not so easily pleased, to see that even the apple vision of the future is a slum by the Kibar Canal in comparison to what God has prepared for those who love him. Not a temple to human achievement, but a temple to what God has achieved through the death and resurrection of his son. Not a utopia, not a no place, but a real place, a real future, and one that will never perish, spoil or fade. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us in spite of our sins. And that when we were helpless, you stepped down in the person of your son and rescued us. Please help us to fix our eyes on him and on the future you have planned for us and to rejoice for all that you've done. Amen.